with that, we're ready to jump right in. We're right in the middle, smack in the middle of a three-part series on growth, looking at, the, at Matthew chapter 13. Now, last week we were looking at Matthew 13, we were looking at our personal growth, our spiritual growth. We were looking at the idea of us having this dynamic relationship with God that's not supposed to be static. But today I want to start earlier in the book of Matthew, way back to Matthew chapter 3. Because in Matthew chapter 3, there's a voice in the wilderness calling out, repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. You go on to the next chapter, chapter 4. And it's not John the Baptist, but Jesus himself saying the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Relevant words for this week. Because on Tuesday morning, early in the morning, there's a man standing outside of a convenience store. And first we see that he's tased down to the ground, and then he's shot. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Go to the next day, Wednesday evening, there's a man driving home, and apparently he's pulled over for a taillight that's out and finds himself shot four times. And there we see, if we watch the, the video, his, his fiance sitting right beside him, live streaming the entire event. If you watch the video a bit further, you see that uh, we can, you can watch with her as the reality sinks in of what's actually taking place. At first, it seems like she's disconnected from the reality, but then as she sees him dying right before her, the reality sinks in. As she begins to lose it, you recognize that her four-year-old daughter is there as well. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then you go to Thursday night. Thursday night, then there's retaliation against the police brutality. Twelve officers shot, five dead. Officers who have no real relationship to the situations that had happened previously in the week other than the uniforms that they wear. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. You know, when you hear those words, this, these words calling us to repent, it makes so much sense. It's easy for me to identify with the need for repentance in our lives because you see it all around us. There's repentance that is needed. We know it because we supposedly live in a post-racial America. And yet at the same time, even though we say we live in a post-racial America, we can watch again and again on the nightly news images that go in front of us that remind us that there's still racially driven violence that occurs. Violence that I, as a white man, can't understand, that I can't relate to because I've never had to go through it. Violence that I've never had to understand because I live in a place of privilege. We can see that there's a need for repentance. We can see that there's a need for repentance because again and again in our lives we see that there is retaliation that happens. We can see that when we have terror in our lives, when we have frustration in our lives, again and again as a society we respond with violence. There is a great need for repentance in our world, and this week we see the need for something to turn, because the repentance means simply to turn around, to turn away from, to leave the things behind that we've been associated with in the past, and we know we're living in a world full of a need for repentance. But the part that confuses me about this line, the part that I get hung up again, on again and again, is this idea that we repent for the kingdom of God is near. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to be near? What does it mean when Jesus says this, when John the Baptist says this, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is near. There's a couple different approaches we could take. 
One would simply mean that the kingdom of God is near in time, that at some time in the future, the kingdom of God is going to come to us, that it's not here yet, but it's coming, it's on its way. We know that we can anticipate it, sort of like our song says, soon and very soon, we're going to see the king, no more dying there, we're going to see the king. But there's also another use of the word near, which is talking about a nearness of proximity. And as you begin to look through the book of Matthew, you begin to realize that Matthew is not just talking about nearness of time, as in the kingdom of God is near because it's off in the future, but also nearness in proximity, that the kingdom is already among us. You see, Matthew is very hung up on this language, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. 35 times in, the, in, his, in his gospel, 35 times he refers to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, far more than any of the other gospel writers. And as you begin to work your way through, you start to see hints of this idea that perhaps the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, isn't just something that's coming, going to come to us one day, but that perhaps the kingdom of heaven is already here among us. And it never becomes more clear than the chapter right before what we're studying. See, the chapter that we're studying is Matthew chapter 13, but in Matthew chapter 12, we find Jesus casting out a demon. Yes, casting out a demon. We were just talking about this last week, how sometimes that makes me feel so uncomfortable, this idea that there's actually demons, and that's what's actually happening, is Jesus is casting out this demon. But he says something right after he does it. He says, if I'm doing this through the Holy Spirit, if through the power of the Spirit I cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom of God has already come upon you. Then you know that the kingdom of God has already come upon you. How can we believe that the kingdom of God is already here when we live in the mess that we live in? How can we believe that the kingdom of God is something that's actually impacting our lives right now here in the present? with all the frustrations that we have. You see, we don't actually need the nightly news to remind us that things are out of control because sometimes our lives individually feel out of control. Sometimes it's just the very mundane things that we go through, the very mundane frustrations of life. Sometimes it's the relationships that are strained. Sometimes it's the finances that are strained. Sometimes it's simply that I get on the freeway and some guy cuts me off and that's it. At that moment, the kingdom of God feels so far gone and distant, and I don't feel the peace of the kingdom in my life. How can we believe that the kingdom of God is near, that the kingdom of God has already come upon us when we live in the kind of world that we live in? It's particularly hard for us with our modern ears to think about the kingdom as something as a present, that's a present reality. Because whenever we hear kingdom of God, we think of something in the future. We think of salvation. So when Jesus talks about little children, he says, if you become like a little child, that's how you can enter the kingdom of God. And immediately our minds go straight towards salvation. And how can I get to heaven? I need to be like a little kid. Or when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, our minds immediately go towards salvation. But perhaps God is talking about something bigger than salvation. Is it possible to talk about something bigger than our own personal salvation? perhaps when we're talking about the actual rule of Christ himself. Because our mind often is about escaping the world that we live in rather than focusing on the God who's trying to penetrate the world that we live in. Remember the witness wear t-shirts of the 90s? Anyone do witness wear t-shirts? 
I had them all. I love the Witness Wear t-shirts. It was great because you never actually had to have a conversation with anyone, right? You could just wear the t-shirt, that's your witness, and you could check that off your list. You could wear it around, and usually with some kind of slogan that was a rip-off of some other company, it would look like you, you would look like maybe you're wearing a Coca-Cola sign on your shirt, like a Coca-Cola shirt or a Nike swoosh, but then when you get closer, you realize there's actually a, a Christian message in there. Well, there's one that stands out as I look back. Um, I don't remember exactly, but something along the lines of the, the Christian job isn't an easy one, and it doesn't pay very much, but the rewards, or the retirement plan, that's what it was, the retirement plan is out of this world. Anyone ever see that? You ever heard that slogan before? The retirement plan is out of this world. But that phrase, out of this world, conveys so much about our theology. This idea that we're just biding time here on earth, we're just waiting through the mess that we're in right now, and we're waiting to the point where we get rescued from here and we get transported over there, and as long as we can hold out our hope right now, we can make it to the other world and we'll be just fine. But when you read through Matthew, and you read through the words of his kingdom of heaven idea, you begin to quickly realize that that doesn't really work. That's not compatible with his worldview, with his ideology, because he views the kingdom as something that we participate here in the present, here in the moment. All of this to lead us up to Matthew chapter 13. That was the longest intro to Matthew chapter 13 ever. But what does this have to do with Matthew chapter 13? First of all, it has everything to do with Matthew chapter 13. I mentioned before that he uses kingdom of heaven um, 35 times. Actually, it's 31 times for the kingdom of heaven phrase. Seven of those times are right here in Matthew chapter 13. Last week, we looked at the parable of the, the different kinds of soil. And as the disciples asked to explain that to them, they asked, what does that mean? What does that look like? His response to them was simply that the kingdom of heaven uh, yeah, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, I, I tell through the parable. So you already get this hint as you read through Matthew chapter 13 at the very beginning that this has something to do with the kingdom of heaven that Matthew has been talking about. But then as you go through the rest of the chapter of 13, you see Jesus say this phrase again and again, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like this you almost get the idea that Jesus himself, the Son of God, God in flesh, is having a hard time communicating to us what he's talking about. Because that's how we communicate when we can't quite say what we're trying to say. Well, it's kind of like this. No, it's kind of like this. Actually, it's a little bit like this. As you hear these different pieces, you start to get a snapshot that you can kind of collectively pull together to get a better understanding of what someone is talking about. If you're a parent, you've probably done this before. As a parent, for me at least, I find that I have been completely exposed in my ignorance. Have you felt this way before? Because your kids, they ask you so many questions. Some of those questions are things you've never even thought about. And a lot of those questions have to do with the very mundane, ordinary things that you relate to that you've never really thought about. And when they ask you to explain it, you find yourself completely lost. A couple years ago, I was driving past a cell phone tower. This is like the clearest moment in my head where I remember thinking, I'm done, I'm lost. I just throw in the towel now as a parent because I don't know. Because as we're driving along, Jocelyn, my oldest one, she asked me what it is, to which I knowledgeably reply, it's a cell phone tower. And I felt pretty good because I thought that's the end of the conversation, but that's never the end of the conversation. So her next question is, well, well how does that work? 
How does it work when, I call, when you call Gammy, that's our, her grandmother, how does it work when you call Gammy that that's somehow involved with your phone? And I, I remember like, thinking at first that I knew the basics of how cell phone technology works, but there was follow-up question after follow-up question after follow-up question. I had no idea. By the end, I was like, I know nothing. But sometimes I know something. And I find myself, even when I know how something works, even when I know the answer to the question that my kids may ask me, I find it hard to communicate it to them. Because it's based off of my own life experience, it's based off of years of doing this or doing that, and you find yourself trying and struggling to find the right words to give simple explanations to everyday life, things that you actually understand. And so you find yourself saying, well, maybe it's like this. Maybe it's, maybe it's like this, actually, or maybe it's a little bit more like this over here. So as we see Jesus doing that, we can relate to this idea. We also can understand that we're not going to understand everything about what he's talking about. But what we do understand is that he's giving us little snapshots to what the kingdom looks like. Little snapshots of the reality of what it means to live in a world where the kingdom is coming, but it also has already come. It also dwells among us. So with that, let's turn to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13 if you're reading from the Pew Bible, like I am, it's page 565. We're going to start reading with Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, where we'll be looking at the, at the mustard seed. Now, for any of you who are following along with the scripture that goes with the message, you'll quickly realize that this message, we're going to skip completely past the, the weeds, the, the, the tares that come before this parable. That's because that's next week. Jesus is kind of jumping around with different kinds of parables, and this actually lumps very nicely with the net that takes place in the next sermon, the net and the fish, so save that for later, but we're going to start with Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. It says this, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and he sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. We've heard this many times before. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like this tiny little mustard seed. I, I brought a picture of the mustard seed to help remind us of the size. This tiny little humble mustard seed, the beginning of a great big plant. We've often found a lot of comfort in the mustard seed. Like as Christians, we, we find the mustard, you can go to a Christian bookstore, and I can almost guarantee you, you'll find like a mustard seed in a keychain. you can carry it around with you, remind us how small the mustard seed is. We spend a lot of time focusing on the mustard seed. Because Jesus also talks about how the mustard seed is like our faith, and we just need the faith of a mustard seed, something very small. But here he's saying something different. The kingdom of God is like this tiny little mustard seed. It starts off small. It starts off so insignificant, but it grows into something more. It's poetic. It, it, it's, it gives us an image immediately that we can kind of understand. And it makes sense when we start to think about the beginning of the church. When we think about if, if the kingdom of God begins when Jesus comes on earth, if the kingdom reign begins in that moment when he's here, it starts off very small. 
It starts off very insignificant. It's easy for us to sometimes bypass that and forget about how unlikely the success of the Christian church should be, how unstable it looks when you look at it from the picture of the disciples, but it's totally small and totally unstable because you have the disciples. I mean, think about the disciples. Think about even like the top three disciples, the closest of his people, like the cream of the crop. We've got Peter, James, and John, right? These are the these are the spokesmen for Christianity after Jesus leaves the earth. And we've got Peter, who is brash, who says things before he even thinks about them. He seems rather unstable in and of himself. Then you have James and John, also unstable. They're the sons of thunder. They've got a temper. They're continually asking to call fire down and consume people. They're looking at the power of success. They want to make sure that they can succeed in the future kingdom. They want to make sure that they have powerful positions. These are the type of people that are at the top of God's chain of command here, the inner circle of disciples. And things don't look any better when Jesus dies because in that moment, of course, Peter, we know, betrays him. And in that moment, you think, this is the future of Christianity. After Jesus leaves, he leaves it to these disciples, this ragtag team. One of them betrays him completely. Um, this does not look very good. It doesn't look like it should be a success. And in fact, in many ways, it's, it's actually not a success to begin with. One of the most confusing things, one of the most compounding things to me is the fact that Jesus, in his absence, puts so much trust in his people. That Jesus, in his absence, relies on us to be the hands and feet of God. If God had some giant boardroom where he's planning these things, where he's planning the future of the church, he's planning how salvation, the word of the gospel, is going to be spread throughout all of the, the lands, if I was to sit on this board ahead of time planning out things, I would say, this is a terrible idea. Us humans, we're terrible at, at following through. We're not reliable. It doesn't start off very strong. And yet somehow, this tiny little mustard seed, this tiny little seed that Jesus plants as he dies and raises to life again and leaves that seed with his disciples, that seed begins to grow. And in our minds, we have a romantic picture of what it looks like to see the mustard seed grow. I, I went to Google, reliable source always, right? Went to Google and typed in mustard seed tree or mustard tree to see what would come up. Let me show you the top image here. One of the top images is this beautiful tree in the mist. And you think it started with this tiny little mustard seed and it grows into so, to something significant, something amazing. And in fact, this tree is, if you follow through the Google images, it's hard to find actually who took this picture originally. But web, uh, blog site after blog site after blog site doing articles on this passage of the mustard seed, they use this tree as the image of this is what the church becomes. Or if we're talking about faith, this is what your faith will become. It starts off something small, but it grows into something stable, something strong, something large. But if you dig deep enough online, you sometimes find truths that are different. Because it actually turns out that this isn't a mustard tree. It's actually an oak tree taken by a guy named David in Illinois. 
And apparently he has a Flickr account where he has this oak tree and he takes a picture of this tree. It's his favorite tree he proclaims on his Flickr account. My favorite tree. And he takes a picture of it. He's been doing it for four years in different seasons. Continually comes back to this tree, back to the tree, back to the tree, capturing it at these different seasons of life. And this one for, is one of the most stunning ones. It's, it, it's a very nice picture of a red burr oak tree. But it's not a mustard plant. And somehow along the way, through the magic of the internet, somebody was looking for a mustard tree and they couldn't find one. They saw this and they thought, this will work, and they put it on their blog site. Well, someone else was writing a blog looking for a mustard tree, and they found that person's blog site, and they said, oh, they have a picture of a mustard tree. So they linked it to their account. And then another blogger did the same thing, and so it eventually got completely lost from the original picture taker. There was no credit given, and this is one of the top searches you'll get the top images you'll get when you look for what a mustard tree looks like. But the truth is, Jesus was a little bit mistaken, maybe not mistaken, maybe using a bit of hyperbole when he said that the tiny little seed grows into a great tree. Because there's no such thing as a mustard tree. It's a plant. It's not a tree. It grows in gardens. Let's go to the next picture to see what the actual mustard plant looks like. It's a little bit hard to see, but you can kind of see this weed-looking thing growing out in the field. Not quite as impressive, not quite as lofty as the original mustard tree that we saw, is it? The truth is, this is what Jesus was talking about. It grew, it grew quick, it grew a lot considering the tiny little seed that it grew up to, but this is kind of where it stops, maybe about six feet tall. We'll go to the next image. If you get to a really big mustard plant, the same guy finds a really big mustard plant. Here's a 10-footer. That's what it looks like when it gets to be quite large. That's the mustard plant Jesus is talking about. Okay, you can take that picture down. The question is why, of all the things in the world, of all the things that Jesus chooses to use, why does he use the mustard seed to illustrate what the kingdom of God would look like? There's other things that he could have used. There's other things that you see to, to be a pattern throughout the Bible that he could use. For example, if you want to talk about something big and strong and majestic and sturdy, like, say, an oak tree, why not the cedar, cedars of Lebanon? You see that in the Old Testament referred to over and over again. If you're talking about something strong, if you're talking about something majestic, you would talk about the cedars of, of Lebanon. But why a mustard plant? Perhaps one of the reasons is because it's actually nothing like the tree. It's not the same kind of majestic, strong thing that stands in front of you where everyone recognizes this is a majestic tree. Because when you look at a tree, you think of power. When you look at a tree, you think of strength. And that's often how we want to see our Christianity. That's how we want to see our kingdom. We want our kingdom to be strong. We want our kingdom to have power. But perhaps Jesus, in using the mustard plant, is saying, this is a different kind of kingdom that I'm sowing. There was a, uh, a political rally not too, too long ago, a, a prayer breakfast, where a bunch of evangelicals were invited to talk about their power, their power in politics. And as I was reading through about this, I, I couldn't help but think of this tree and the way that we sometimes link power to Christianity. There's a leader who is saying this. He says, I say to you folks, talking to the Christians, because you have such power and such influence, unfortunately the government has weeded away from you pretty strongly, but you're going to get 
it back. Remember this, if you add up the men, the women um, that are here, the most important, you're, you are the most important, powerful lobbyist. You are powerful. There's something intoxicating about this message, that as a, as a group of people, we can become a powerful people. As a group of people, we can change things around us. We can rule people around us. We like power. The disciples also liked power, but they were totally off course when they were looking to make the Christian movement a movement about power. If you go to Desire of Ages, there's a whole chapter on Judas. And when you read through what Ellen White says about Judas, she talks about how he is seeing the movement as one of power. He sees the movement as at least of having potential of power, but is struggling to see that, that the disciples and even Jesus himself are messing it up. They're losing opportunities. They're not seizing the day like they could. And he sees him in himself the potential to help turn this movement around so it can be one of power. And she says this. She says that the turning point in his moment, the turning point in the history of Judas is when he hears the words, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. He saw that Christ was offering spiritual rather than worldly good. See, we all have the cravings to have power. We all have the cravings to be more strong, more majestic, more glorious, to look more like the oak tree. And it's not just about what we do corporately, but it's also about what we do privately. It's about what we do in our individual lives, how we continually find ourselves struggling for power rather than sacrifice. But the mustard seed, the mustard plant, is a different type of plant. In fact, it's not even a very well-liked plant. In fact, it was so unliked that it was, there was actually laws against planting mustard seeds. And the reason for this, and this is in the Jewish culture, the reason why they had laws planting, against planting mustard seeds is even though the mustard seed was valuable and useful in and of itself, the plant itself was an obnoxious plant. Once you planted it in your garden, the tendency was for it to take over everything around it. It would just multiply and multiply and multiply, and next thing you know, the only thing you had left in your garden was a mustard plant. It's kind of like, did anyone grow up in Tennessee or the South somewhere? If you go to the South, nobody? Am I the only? Okay, a couple of people, there we go. If you're in, I was like, man, I'm so alone here. I didn't grow up in the South, but I, but I went to college there. And if you go through the South, you see this thing called kudzu. Remember kudzu? It's, I think that's what, what it's called. It's this plant that just grows. It, was, it wasn't native to the land, but they introduced it like we often do because we're fools. We take it from somewhere else and we plant it here. Next thing you know, it takes over everything. And you go to forest sometimes. You'll be driving down the road through a forest, and you'll see nothing of the actual original tree. You'll just see this tree covered in green. There's nothing else to it, but this kudzu that has completely taken over the tree. It's kind of like that. Or kind of like wild raspberry plants. Do you have wild black raspberries here? So my last house that I was in in Washington, we, we bought it after it had been vacant for a couple of years. Uh, things change in a house after it's been vacant for a couple of years. And they had this beautiful garden, this huge flower bed that had been meticulously planned at one time, at one point in time. But over the years, as it had sat there vacant, these black raspberry bushes started to take over 
the land. Now, I used to love black raspberry bushes because the black raspberries themselves are so good. They're so delicious. You can just eat and eat and eat. They're, they're amazing. It's like a sign of summer when they come out. But when the black raspberry bushes are actually on your own property, your relationship to them changes. And those things I could not control. I can't tell you how many scratches I got with those things, rustling with them, getting them out of my yard. I bought a utility trailer and I loaded that thing up full, overflowing, time and time again. We're not talking one load or two loads or three loads, multiple, multiple loads of just black raspberry bushes off of my property. And it seemed like I could never quite get the stuff out of my hair because once I removed it, I thought I got everything out. A week later, I'd come back and I'd see this black raspberry bush crawling around the ground, creeping out and starting to grab another plant and choke the life out of it. It's kind of like that, maybe minus the choking the life out of it. But the idea is the kingdom of heaven is like this mustard plant. And it may start off small. It may not grow into something glorious. It may not be the kind of thing that everybody looks at and everybody sees value in it. But it does multiply. It does grow. It doesn't give up easily. It doesn't find itself facing adversity and shrinking back from adversity, but it continues on even as people try to get rid of it. It continues to spread through the land. There's almost something subversive about this message. Because again, in this context, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus already has some enemies that are forming. There are already people who are saying, I don't know about where you're going with this. I don't know about the kind of kingdom that you're talking about. I don't know if this is good for our people. I don't know if this is good for our land. But like the mustard seed, it continues to spread. It continues to spread in the face of adversity. You could take it a step further. Some people say that the mustard seed finds its greatest usefulness when it's crushed. The greatest fragrance comes out once the mustard seed becomes fully damaged, crushed. That's when the aroma is released. That's when the taste of the mustard seed is released. Some people have taken it so far, looking at this parable, to say that it also speaks to the power of sacrifice in the Christian movement. That the Christian movement doesn't find its power through overtaking others by the strength of an oak tree or the strength of a, of a cedar tree, but the Christian movement finds its strength through sacrifice. I was uh, reading through uh, one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, one of his more recent ones, David and Goliath. And in, in David and Goliath, he tells this story about this couple, Cliff and Wilma Dirksen. Um, it's a couple where their daughter was murdered. And, and he has this interview with them, and it goes like this. How do you feel about whoever did this to Candace? This is a question to the, to the dad. How do you feel about whoever did this to Candace, the daughter? And he says this. He said, we would like to know the person or the persons or who the person or the persons are so we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives, Cliff said. Wilma goes next, the wife. Our main concern was to find Candace. We found her, meaning that they found her body. She went on, I can't say at this point that I forgive this person, but Gladwell says the stress was on the phrase at this point. I can't say at this point we forgive this person. We have done all that we can We've done all, or we have all done something that's dreadful in our lives or have felt the urge to do it. In an interview outside of this book, Godwell talks about how this moment, sitting in their yard, hearing this conversation of forgiveness from two Christians who lost their daughter, 
who found her murdered, who still didn't even know who the person was that murdered, who brutally murdered their daughter, but were seeking a way of forgiveness. And he, he says as he sits there in this backyard, and he has this conversation with them, it's a turning point in Malcolm Gladwell's life. Because Malcolm Gladwell grew up in the church, but over the years began to wander away from the church. And in, a, in an interview, he says this. He says, I've always believed in God. I've grasped the logic of the Christian faith. What I've had a hard time seeing is God's power. I put that sentence in the past tense because something happened to me when I sat in Wilma Dirksen's garden. It is one thing to read in a history book about people empowered by their faith, but it's quite another to meet an otherwise very ordinary person in the backyard of a very ordinary house who has managed to do something extraordinary. It was a conversion point for him because he began to see the power of the Christian movement, but it's a power that's different from our typical views of power. It's not the kind of power that's oppressive. It's not the kind of power that may stand on a lofty mountain in front of everyone else, but it's a power that comes through living a sacrificial life, through living a life that's empowered by the Spirit, through living a life that's forgiving to people who have wronged us. And it's in that moment that you begin to see the power of the mustard plant that's far more powerful than an oak tree. But Jesus goes on. And he goes on to say that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that has been worked in to the bread. Or in the Pew Bible version, yeast that has been hidden into the bread. I really like this imagery. I'll tell you why. Because secretly, I don't like communion bread. Can I say that out loud? I don't really like communion bread. And it's always been a real problem for me because I love bread. I am addicted to carbohydrates, right? It's not something that's easy to walk away from. But when it comes to communion bread, the unleavened bread, it's always bothered me that there's all this baggage that comes with yeast. Because Jesus talks about the yeast of the Pharisees and it's kind of like the yeast of sin. And so we take it out of our communion bread and we just have flour and oil and some salt and we mix it all together and we bake it. And it doesn't really seem like bread to me. It seems more like something that's not finished. I eat it and I think, this could be better if we just put a little bit of yeast in it. And so it's always bothered me that there's this bad reputation for the yeast in bread because bread with yeast in it is way better. And so it's so nice to hear Jesus actually putting a positive spin on bread that has yeast on it and saying the kingdom of heaven is actually like the bread that tastes good, the type of bread that I like to eat. I used to make bread. I, I, I say used to for a couple of reasons. One is because I got lazy and I just kind of stopped. The other is I just realized when I moved to Erie that I am now living one mile, yes, one mile away from the Great Harvest Bread Company. There's no need to ever bake. Have you ever had that bread? I'm not trying to do an advertisement. It's just amazing. They give you the samples when you walk in. It's a great place to go. So I'll probably never bake bread again. But I remember when I first started trying to make bread, I would have these failed loaves of bread. Have you ever failed making a loaf of bread? It's kind of easy to do. But the first time you do it, you think, I'm never going to eat bread again. This is terrible. The first time that I made bread, I followed all the ingredients super carefully, trying to do things just right. And then as I, as I make it, it comes out like a brick. It's worse than unleavened bread because it was meant to be leavened and now it's this solid brick. And then I started to realize what I needed to do was I needed to knead the dough better or I needed to get a KitchenAid and let the KitchenAid knead the dough better. That's the better way to go. 
And, and what's happening when you knead the dough is you're rearranging the proteins within it. And when you rearrange the proteins within it, they create these traps so that when you put the yeast in there, the yeast, a living thing, begins to eat the carbohydrates, begins to convert them into sugar, begins to release the carbon dioxide as a, as a waste product. And what's happening is, if you've kneaded the dough right, it traps the carbon dioxide. You get these air pockets. And that's where the leavened bread becomes. I actually brought, bought a loaf of bread. Not from the Great Harvest Company, unfortunately. But if you open this up, if you take a leavened piece of bread, and you rip it in half, and you look at it, you can kind of see what has taken place. When you look inside a loaf of bread that's been cut down the middle, you see all these tiny little pockets of air. All these little tiny pockets of air where the yeast has done its work. And it's a fascinating, th fascinating thing to think about, that individually it seems so insignificant. You get that tiny little yeast packet and you dump it in your mix, it doesn't seem like it's enough to do much. But when it gets thoroughly mixed into the bread, when the proteins are arranged just right, individually they have these tiny, tiny little impacts on the bread that you're about to consume. But collectively, corporately, they work together to make an amazing loaf of bread. But the thing is, that yeast has to be mixed in. That yeast has to be dispersed within the bread. It doesn't work if it kind of sits in a corner of the bread. It doesn't work if it just gets sprinkled on top of the bread. It has to be thoroughly integrated into the loaf to have an impact. It kind of reminds me when Jesus talks about the salt of the world. He says that you as a church, you as believers, you as my followers, you are the salt of the earth. I like that imagery as well. It's the same idea that we bring something good to the world around us. When you ever, if you ever eat something that hasn't been salted, you know it needs salt. If you eat potato chips, you know that salt is good. Salt makes things better. But as much as salt makes things better, as addicting as food that salty can be, nothing's worse than when you get salt by itself. Nothing's worse than when you get a bite of salt that hasn't been mixed in and it's just standing there alone. It makes you want to throw up, right? It's not good at all. And he's saying that as a Christian body, as a Christian people, we don't taste very good when we're all collected together by ourselves. If we're not intermingling with the world around us, we're not having an impact on the world around us. If we're not intermingling with the world around us, we don't taste very good. We may make may even want to make some people throw up. It may just happen. But when the yeast, when the salt is stirred up and it goes throughout the world, when we intermingle with our neighbors, when we intermingle with the people that we work with, when we make friends with people who don't think like us, when we have conversations that are open with people who don't think like us, we begin to be the yeast that makes the impact. We begin to see the kingdom spread throughout the world. We begin to see the leavening effect take effect. Going back to the beginning of this story, we're talking about the shootings that took place this week. It's often hard to see where the kingdom is when we're in pain. It's hard to see the, where the kingdom is when we recognize the depravity of the humanity around us. But yet at the same time, just like the yeast that takes place throughout the bread, as we go out into the world around us, we have these tiny little moments where we can make an impact. Tiny little spheres of, of influence where we can make something good. I wanna show you a picture from this week. It's a picture that's began trending. Can't even verify if it's completely legit or not yet at this point. 
But there's this image that's been circulating. It went on Twitter first, I think. As you see this group of people, it's kind of hard to see in our light here, but if you see this group of people, there's a, a group of people that are huddled together. This is in Dallas. This is during the shootings. And they say what's taking place is this group of people are huddled around a stroller. In this moment where we see the worst of humanity, we also see the best of humanity, where people, total strangers of different color, come together and they surround a stroller to protect this baby and to transport the stroller together to a new place. It's in those kind of moments, in those small little pockets of influence, where you see kingdom growth. We're not always going to be in such urgent situations, but we always have influence. We always have an impact on the world around us. We always have the ability to change the world around us. Because the kingdom of God is not some distant thing. The kingdom of God is not something that's just coming in the future, but the kingdom of God is something that has already come here in the present. The choice that you have, the choice that I have, is whether we participate with that kingdom. The choice we have is whether we engage in acts of kingdom so that the growth can be real, so that the growth can have a good, beautiful impact on the world around us.